Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 5th of February. This Sunday's theme is the second in a series in which we're looking at some of the teaching of Jesus that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This week's passage is about salt and light. Jesus was calling his disciples to live as he lived and our first song was Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Some notices. This Sunday's on-site service includes a celebration of the Lord's Supper and another edition of This Time Tomorrow, and all are welcome. Also on Sunday afternoon at four, we have Church in the Cafe, when we'll hear about the work of the Trussell Trust, who run our local food bank. Next Saturday, Who Let the Dads Out, our group for dads and their preschool children, meets at 10am. There will be a baptismal class starting soon. If anyone is interested in talking about believers' baptism, then please do speak to me. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. Their children will be successful everywhere. An entire generation of godly people will be blessed. They themselves will be wealthy and their good deeds will last forever. Light shines in the darkness for the godly. They are generous, compassionate and righteous. Good comes to those who lend money generously and conduct their business fairly. Such people will not be overcome by evil. Those who are righteous will be long remembered. They do not fear bad news. They confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. They share freely and give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. They will have influence and honour. And now we of ordinary people A kingdom where love is the key A city alike to the nation Heirs of the promise are we A people whose life is in Jesus A nation together we stand Only through grace are we worthy Inheritors of the land A new day is dawning A new age to come When the children of promise Shall flow together as one A truth long neglected But the time has now come When the children of promise Shall flow together as one A people without recognition Within the destiny seen Called to a heavenly vision His purpose shall be fulfilled Abandon ourselves to the King 
Restorer God, we praise you for who you are, our healer and our redeemer. Your light has broken forth like the dawn. You came into our darkness to live among us, your body broken on the cross that we might live. We cry out to you and you respond, Here I am. Transforming God, we adore you. Restorer God, we have sinned against you in our thoughts and actions. You came to loose the bonds of injustice, and we have stood by and said nothing. You came to let the oppressed go free, and we have kept them in chains. You asked us to share our bread with the hungry, and we let them starve. You asked us to bring the homeless into our homes, and we shut the door. Restorer, healer, forgive us and transform us, so our hearts and our homes will always be open, open to you and to the call you have placed upon our lives, to be lights in our communities. Forgiving God, thank you that even when we let you down, when we have not acted as you would, when we have allowed our light to fade and our saltiness to lose its flavour, still we are forgiven and healed and restored in you, ready to go out and shine for you. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavour? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. 
So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The passage that we're looking at today is in three sections, and the first two are implied instructions. Jesus says to his listeners, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Salt of the earth has come to mean a decent person, but Jesus isn't saying that his disciples are good chaps, and that it makes him proud to have worked alongside them. No, what he's saying is that they should live up to being the people that God has called them to be. Last week we looked at the previous section, which had become known as the Beatitudes, eight impersonal statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. But after these eight statements that could be perceived as having been aimed at other people, Jesus then turned to his disciples and said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It is in the context of Jesus telling his hearers that they will be blessed when they are persecuted that Jesus tells them that they are salt on the earth and light in the world. Jesus recognises that in the face of persecution, the natural reaction of disciples might be to keep their heads down, but Jesus reminds them who they are. They are salt and light. But that is a role that they have to live up to. Both of these metaphors have biblical precedence. Salt was very important as a commodity 2,000 years ago, and this gives us the background for the metaphor that Jesus used. We can see that salt had a significant part to play in society, but what of this idea of salt losing its saltiness? The clue perhaps to understanding the second part of this metaphor is in a specific way that salt was used. In the winter months we are familiar with the way that roads are gritted to keep the traffic moving in icy conditions. I believe that what is spread from the gritter trucks is a mixture of grit and rock salt. As the temperature rises, paths and roads are left with a muddy slurry of grit and salt. This is not unlike the way in which salt was used in Palestine in Jesus' days. Salt was the special ingredient in fuel blocks that were made from animal dung and then burnt on the family's fire. These blocks were made by mixing salt into the dung and then forming them into blocks and drying them in the sun. The salt helped the dung burn for longer and more evenly. When the salt in the dung burnt out, the block of salt mixed with the dung was, well, just dung, and it was thrown outside where it would be trodden down into the mud to dry out the ground. It's not the most pleasant picture, but Jesus saw his followers as valuable agents bringing something pure into an impure world. Their example would keep the fire of faith alive even under stress. Their example would spread faith to those mired in the cultural dung. But if their example didn't ring true, then they were worthless. They would be dug into the mud under the heels of critics. 
If this is indeed the meaning behind this metaphor of salt that Jesus used, we can see that it is linked to the second idea, which is that followers of Jesus are also the light of the world. Again, we find that there is a biblical background to this metaphor. There are two verses amongst what we call the servant songs in the book of Isaiah that refer to Israel as God's light to the Gentile nations. In Isaiah 42 verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And in 49 verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. We are familiar with the idea of Jesus as the light of the world, but this idea has its roots in Israel's history. Israel was called by God to be a light to the other nations, in other words, the world. Jesus came into the world as a light to the world, and now the church is called to be light to the world. But, rather in the same way that salt can cease to do its job and get thrown out with a dung, so a light is no good if it's hidden under a bucket. This is pretty obvious, but it's worth saying because the way that the expression don't hide your light under a bushel is used, it makes it sound as though using bushels to hide lights is a perfectly reasonable option, but not one that Jesus wants you to choose. You've heard it said, hide your light under a bushel, but I say to you, don't hide your light under a bushel. The whole point is that no one would hide a light under a bushel. The whole point of this story is that putting a large bucket because that's all a bushel is, over a lamp is a seriously mad thing to do on two fronts. It stops you seeing the light from the lamp and it puts the flame out. Neither, says Jesus, does it make any sense to be a disciple of Jesus and fail to offer any evidence in one's life to prove it. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Baptist Christians are children of the Reformation, and so when we hear these words of Jesus, we should have no doubt that righteousness by works, that is, our making ourselves right with God, has no place in our understanding of the gospel. God has done all the heavy lifting. It's a done deal. It's you are, not you should be, or you may become, or even you must. You are. That's all there is to it. And that's grace. The trouble, of course, is that the fullness of grace, like the devil, is in the detail. And what does justified by grace mean? For too many of us, too much of the time, being a Christian is about morality, about sustaining a boundary that sets us apart, or too often, above. The Old Testament prophets make short work of this notion. They cry out against the confusion of true and false worship condemning God's people for honouring the letter of the law while ignoring its spirit. For this sham adherence to the code, they expect God to respond to their cries and are disappointed when God seems not to notice. Through the prophets, God calls God's people to abandon their hollow obedience, that they might come to know God by fulfilling the intent of the law through just and compassionate care for the neighbour, loving one's neighbour as one loves oneself. That simple declaration is the foundation of nearly all prophetic proclamation. It's not very original. Still, the human propensity for rationalising sinful 
inward-turning behaviour means it can't be repeated too frequently. We're not only slow learners, we are, to borrow a phrase used in both Old and New Testaments, a stiff-necked people, stubbornly resistant to change. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus embraces and renews this prophetic message. Having just proclaimed the Beatitudes, the upside-down values of God's reign, he explains how these values are fulfilled in the lives of believers. Just as God blesses the poor in spirit because God chooses to do so, and not because people have rushed to spiritual poverty to earn that blessing, so God simply chooses to create and commission salt and light for the earth. By grace, God chooses us. That said, it's clear that it's a lot more complicated for us to actually be salt and light than it was for us to become salt and light. Being salt and light involves giving ourselves away completely. True salt, salt that has not lost its taste, disappears into food to make the food tastier. Jesus' disciples transform the world by disappearing in humble service. Life in a world thus salted is savoury. I've left little time for the second half of our passage which relates to Jesus' words regarding fulfilling the scriptures. Here Jesus makes it clear that he is part, indeed he is the fulfilment, of God's plan for the world. This means that Jesus is not to be treated separately from the Old Testament but rather as a continuation and a fulfilment of it. It is said that it's important to understand the past in order not to repeat its mistakes. Understanding the history of God's relationship with humanity is important because it tells us something about God and about ourselves. On the other hand, to cling uncritically to the past is to deny that God is a living God, continually doing new things among us. When Jesus spoke about his mission, it was, he said, not one of abolition but of completion, and those who follow him are to manifest such a mission in their behaviour and relationships. Anyone who appeals to faith and freedom in Christ to do less, be less, give less, serve less and love less than our forebears, such as Thomas Helwys, one of our Baptist forebears who lived at the beginning of the 17th century, to do so is to misunderstand the message of Jesus. So where does this leave the church in our day? It's interesting to see how the debate about the interference of the state in the spiritual realm is as real today as it was 400 years ago. The sides are drawn up differently in that the state no longer seems to have much understanding of the religious world and the position it defends is no longer Anglicanism but secularism. But the issues are just as real. For several years the graph of the numbers in membership in Baptist churches has been showing a decline. There was a report some years ago which suggested that half the denomination's churches had fewer than 50 members. This was interpreted as meaning that half the denomination's churches were small. I suspect that 50 would now be considered to be at the low end of medium-sized, and yet there have been fewer churches having closed their doors than we might have expected, and when closures are reported they are roughly matched by the numbers of new congregations. A book published around the millennium speculated what the church might look like in 2050, and we're getting towards being halfway there from when the book was published. 
It decided that rather than having declined, the percentage of the population who will be followers of Jesus would have increased. The thing is, the population was that of the world, not just of our country. The global picture is of a church that is growing. It's just that it's not growing here. I believe that this passage offers a warning regarding the future of the church in our country. It warns us not to forget who we are and where we've come from. It warns us not to become so defensive of our position that we hide ourselves away like a light under a bucket, rather than being visible to all as a city is that has been built on a hill. Thirdly, it warns that we can go the other way and become so integrated and so relevant that no one can tell who we are and what we stand for. It will be like that last line in Animal Farm. The creatures outside look from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. Our calling is to remember who we are and where we come from and to be both different and visible. In our desire to appear reasonable and normal and to avoid being given the label extremist, we have shied away from the calling of Jesus. Over the last few years, I've got to know some of the Catholic priests at St Alban and St Stephen's Church. I remember one morning attending a clergy breakfast there and we ate in the priest's dining room in the house they share. It reminded me a little of the TV show Father Ted, in that the majority of the priests were Irish at that time and the wall had a number of pictures of popes from the past. I was reminded of a story that my father-in-law told me when he used to visit a cottage hospital in South End. He told me about a very elderly Catholic priest who was now living in the geriatric ward of the hospital. He wore his clerical collar and shirt in bed because he was a priest and because he would remain a priest until the Lord took him. God's call on our lives is not subject to a retirement age. Old age might mean that we can't do what we used to do, but it doesn't mean that God's call on our life has been suspended. God has called us to be missionaries to go into the world and to make disciples. A few years ago we used to take our holidays camping alongside Lake Trasimeno, a body of water that's roughly round in shape and about eight or nine miles in diameter. It's the largest lake in the mainland section of Italy. At night the lights on the far side of the lake quit twinkle as lights do. Any illuminated body, whether a torch or a star, when seen from a distance, tends to twinkle. Apparently this is a function of the passage of the light travelling through air. Light that is not bound by obstructions dissipates over miles, but it is diminished over that distance. It becomes weaker as it gives itself up to the atmosphere. We humans, even we so-called faithful ones, are hesitant to give ourselves away quite so fully, to dissolve or dissipate quite so completely. We like to hold back a, a little or to cluster with like-minded people so that we can complement one another on our saltiness and brightness without the effort of salting or lighting anything else. We are called simply to bear the savour of our saviour, but instead we bear it, the bitterness of our betterness. Too much salt is thrown out and trampled underfoot, along with the food it's tainted. In the same way, too often we hide our light, or at least contain its glow, under an upturned pot. Fearful that letting it shine farther might make it less bright in our immediate vicinity, 
It's as though there are corners of God's world that are unworthy of the illumination. They would know if we let our light be placed on a lampstand rather than under the security of a basket. We shouldn't be surprised that many would rather stand with others in the darkness than be cursed by light that shines only on some. Ultimately, to be salt and light, to be used by God as God intends, is to dissolve and to dissipate, and in the process to flavour and enlighten. There is no partial dissolution, no limited dissipation. To be salt and light is to live like the old hymn says, I surrender all. There remains only this hitch, the realisation that this dissolving and dissipating is best known by another name, dying. Dying to control, dying to security, dying to self. That in turn is the shortest route, the only route to resurrection. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul proclaims to the Corinthians and to us that he will know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not wisdom, not lofty words, neither heaped up salt nor basket-bound light, but Christ crucified, drawing behind those who would bear the cross, letting their light shine, dying to live. Oh, words of power 
and authority. God's looking for a people who are willing to be counted in his glorious victory. Are we ready to save her? In darkness, are we ready to be light? God's seeking out a very special people to manifest His truth and His might. The Baptist Missionary Society BMS World Mission has called us today to pray for their work and so we're pleased to do so. Let us pray. Lord, as we pray today for BMS World Mission and for your work across this world, we want to proclaim that you are Lord of the nations, the maker of heaven and earth, and that for you there are no borders and your compassion will never run out. We worship and praise you because you are the living God who sees the plight of your people and who hears their calls. We thank you that you continue to hear the prayers of people in desperation, in places of war and conflict, of those who are stateless or homeless, sick in poverty or overwhelmed by worry and anxiety. We thank you that you are our hope and our salvation. We pray for a more just, caring and peaceful world. Living God who sees and hears, we thank you that you have stirred the hearts of the faithful to be generous with their lives, their wealth, their time and their expertise. We thank you for every person who has given to your work through BMS and we ask for your blessing to be upon them. We thank you for those who are faithful in prayer and for those who live sacrificially, that they may give and serve. We thank you that through the generosity of BMS supporters, tangible expressions of your love have been possible in places where hope had been extinguished. 
living God who sees and hears and speaks. We praise you that in places where the name of Jesus has never been heard before, you are revealing yourself. You are putting a hunger in hearts to search for truth, and you're opening eyes and ears. Lord of the harvest, we ask that you will send out more workers into these places. We pray that in every place BMS works, new local leaders will rise up with a passion for mission and service. We pray that as BMS seeks to work with people on the move, most marginalised and the least evangelised, that you will guide and bless that work. We pray that you will make our work fruitful as we work for gender equality, the safeguarding of the most vulnerable and for creation stewardship. We pray that you will create in us humble hearts that we can learn from others and build one another up. And Lord, we pray for ourselves that we will be people who see this world as you see it and hear your voice in our lives and be equipped to serve where you have placed us. We pray that we may be open to new possibilities for service this year. Amen. Lady Macbeth was concerned about her husband's ability to see through her ambition to become queen when he became king. 
and Shakespeare has her say that she feared his nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness. That's one of the many expressions of Shakespeare that's become part of the English language, and it's one that Billy Bragg took up in his song, The Milkman of Human Kindness. Our final piece of music is a version of that song that he recorded in lockdown, with his thoughts having turned to how we should love one another. But first, a final prayer. Light of the world, shine through us. Like salt of the earth, scatter us where there is need. Help us work together to repair and renew, to rebuild and rejoice throughout this world. In Jesus' name, Amen. And here's to good neighbourliness.
Allah.